our second reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but honestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of the angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Dean Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here, and let's pray. Dear God, we do come and thank you again that we can lift our voices to you, that we can look to you for guidance and instruction and encouragement, the ways to understand ourselves, the ways to understand you, the ways to understand what it's like to be a part of your family. We pray as we look at these particular words from Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians, that you would inform us but also transform us and that we would leave with a deeper encouragement and a sense of how much you have made us to be together and to honor you and to live as your people. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, again, just a reminder, we've had a number of folks visiting the last few weeks. Just a reminder, we love kids, and so as kids are a little loud here and there, we don't mind. Some of you had people so excited about worship, your kids rushed the stage like you're at a Taylor Swift concert. That's great. You know, maybe don't come up the stairs, but little kids coming forward to love, we love that. So really, if you have kids here and they're a little loud to you, I always say, particularly if it's not my kids, I almost don't hear it. So I don't mind. Amen. Amen. Johnny, too. So... Um, we're so glad you're here. And um, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, what you heard Ike read just a minute ago. Uh, and then I just want you to think about this for a second. You know, you say tomato, but I say tomato. And you say potato, but I say potato. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Let's, let's call the whole thing off. Isn't it, how does so many of us Know that line. Who, who knows what that's from? Like, 
It's from a song called Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, right? Written by Ira and George Gershwin for a movie called Shall We Dance from 1937. Some of you probably learned it from when Harry Met Sally, when Harry Connick did it, which would be more like 30 years ago. But 1937, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. And it's, it's performed beautifully and humorously by Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in that movie. If you have time this afternoon, take you about eight minutes to pull that up on YouTube and look up Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. And of course, they're illustrating in this lyrical way the difficulty in being a team and working together in what it means to be different and diverse and try to value and work together. The compelling irony of the song in that scene is that, that while they're singing about how hard it is, while they're tempted to call the whole thing off, they're showing you and I how stunningly appealing it is for it to work well. No one does it better, in my humble opinion, in a movie than Fred and Ginger. And if you see that, you see seamless partnership. They're singing and tap dancing on roller skates about how they're tempted to call the whole thing off. One unit, a man and a woman, different parts working together. And yet for them, even I'm sure as they practice in real life, and for us, I do say potato and you do say potato. And I do say tomato and you do say tomato. And frankly, sometimes it is tempting to call the whole thing off. It's hard to be the people of God. We've been looking at it all fall. We're not done. That's how hard it is. Becoming the people of God. We've been studying some of the more historic passages in the New Testament that touch on what it means to be God's sacred, holy, synchronized community. Like Fred and Ginger. One part, one body as they move, but many parts. Two different people. Different things happening. We've looked at John 17. Last week we looked at Romans 14. A couple weeks from now we're going to look at Philippians 2. The hymn of Philippians 2, which is so great. And this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, which I bet many of you have heard before. It's well known. And Paul is writing to a church that's tempted to call the whole thing off. Off with Jesus, certainly off with Paul, and for sure off with being the people of God. Paul's writing to this church in about 53 or 54 AD in Corinth, which is the capital of that particular area of that part of the Roman Empire. It's the port city of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's about a two-hour drive south of Athens. It sits on an isthmus. So it's a major port. People would stock, stop here, drag their boats from one side of the peninsula to the other. It took a little while. And it's a fairly new city. It actually was destroyed and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar about 100 years before our letter. It's been resettled by retired German, or, excuse me, Roman soldiers, and it's flooded by sailors who are getting off the boat, not looking for the higher way in virtue or practice. It's a city known for license, for people getting into trouble. It's full of different ethnicities and languages. And so Paul is writing to that church. And this is a church he knows really well. He spent a year and a half in Corinth before he wrote this letter. He actually goes back and spends time with them again. This is the second longest city he ever spends time in. Ephesus is the longest. And we believe he wrote no less than four letters to the Corinthians, of which we have two. Which begs the question, why? Why write four letters 
to this church. Wouldn't you love to have all four? And simply because he loved him and they needed help in becoming the people of God. In this first letter, which is fully worth reading, there's lots of things going on. There's groups advocating, ignoring Paul altogether, saying he doesn't speak in the highfalutin way they'd like him to speak. There's lots of issues of morality in the early chapters. There's issues about how they're sharing food at communion. If you go to chapter 15, it's one of the best teachings we have on the resurrection and its implications in the entire New Testament. This young church is used to being an earthy people or community defined by the world around them. They're trained in creating us's and them's, and they're, they're forming the church in that sort of understanding. They're slowly developing this sort of elitist hierarchy, this idea that some of us are better than others and some of you are worse than the rest of us. And if you're with us again this summer, you can hear the echo of all the letters of 1 John, a temptation to a special group, and a worse group, and not love, but hostility and separation. In our chapter, Paul's addressing widespread, ongoing arguments about gifting, about identity, about understanding just what it means to be God's people. Paul's again reminding him they are a new people, not like their neighbors in Corinth. They have new morals, new virtues to cultivate, new ways to live even though the church is finding it difficult to be this new people of God. Paul wants them to resist the temptation to call the whole thing off and leave the church. And he's writing to order their minds and their hearts that, hey, you are one body, but all valued in your many parts. You're one body and all are honored. Jesus died for you and brought you together and gave to you. One scholar writes that what they're excited about is Look how my gifts express itself instead of look at the giver and all he did for us. And he's going to stress again that the highest mark, the highest sign of them as the church is love, not these gifts that they seem to want to claim for themselves or make sure they have the one that's the coolest, the most noteworthy. Paul is saying again, look like Fred and Ginger, be synchronized to show how appealing life with Jesus really is. So I wanna pull out four things we can learn about what it means for us to become the people of God from this chapter, four things. First is this, God's creative and redemptive work is always form and fill, form and fill. That's why we had Genesis 1 read this morning. Some of us may remember when we studied Genesis 1 two summers ago. And we looked again that in those early verses, that's what God is doing in his creative work. He's forming something, sky, land, and sea, and then he's filling those forms, birds, animals, and fish. God creates form, and then he fills those forms with his good work. And his good work, his filling, is super creative and interesting. It's not the same. For example, we have different fish. There's a variety of types, dolphins, whales, sharks, but there's a, a variety of colors. You can have gray dolphins, blue marlins, yellow bass, black dragonfish, different beauty, different teeth, different habits. Some swim in a school, some swim by themselves. God forms and then he fills. He also, in Genesis 1, forms humanity. He creates humanity. But then he fills it with man and woman, different, distinct, his creative energy. 
And that same work, that same pattern of our good God continues in his redemptive work, which is what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians. God's new work, his new creation, his new saved people are gonna carry and express the same creative energy of this God. And so guess what? There's gonna be forms and filling. God's gonna form and save men, women, boys, girls. But the filling in those forms are gonna be new and unique and different, and they're gonna push us all. They're gonna shock us all. It's gonna be a little more than we expected. You heard Ike read. There's gonna be Jew and Gentile. That's enough to preach on for weeks. It's enough to verse many, or to write many of the lines Paul's gonna write in letters throughout the New Testament, the new church, figuring out what's it mean for us to be Jew and Gentile. You're gonna have different gifts. You're gonna be from different countries. You're gonna have different languages. You're gonna have different understandings of things like Sabbath and Saturday and circumcision. And it's gonna take some time to figure out tomato and tomato and not call the whole thing off. Because God's forming new people for his name and he's filling it with broader arms than we imagine. We've talked about this before. So this new creation is building on the old creation with new redeemed purpose. And the astounding variety represents the astounding giver and creator. So the Corinthian church had to get their brains open and say, wait, the way God's gonna form his people here is bigger than I understood. And the new church here in America, around the world, we often have to get our own minds around God's forming a people for his name and is gonna fill it with people bigger than we understand. Paul spent years thinking on this. There's lots of years of Paul's life that we don't know about. I'm reading Acts with some men in the church and my sons, and one of the things we talked about with both groups recently is the gaps in understanding, the years Paul went away to understand how Jesus is fulfilling the, New Test, the Old Testament vision for God's work. And part of that work is, oh my gosh, Jew and Gentile. It changed Paul's life when he understood this. God's gonna fill his form with different races, different ages. In the Roman world, it's gonna put a new respect and esteem on being married. It's gonna put a new respect and esteem on what singleness means. So for this Corinthian church to rail against God's form and filling is to rail against the giver. This elitism is to rail against God's good way. So, God's creative and redemptive work is form and fill in our lives in the Corinthian church all the way back to Genesis. Second thing we can take away is in God's family, still in God's family, you and I can sometimes feel insecure and insignificant. In this new great creation, redeemed, stamped by Jesus' love in the empty tomb, sometimes you and I can feel insecure and insignificant. You can see it in here between the lines of 1 Corinthians 12. What's happening is there are people in the church who feel undervalued, who feel unseen, who feel unknown, who feel unimportant. And there's also people who are feeling arrogant and haughty and proud and overimportant because they're used to the way the world arranges people and they like to look for the us and them and they begin to assume, well, if I have that particular gift or that particular amount of money, then I must be better. And then people began to say, well, if you're better with those things, I want those things. Right here in Jesus' church. I mean, I don't need to feel bad. Johnny doesn't need to feel bad if this church people feel that way because Paul planted that church. The apostle Paul planted that church. 
And yet here, still people redeemed by Jesus, growing in faith, but still fallen, sometimes struggle with feeling insecure and insignificant. Sometimes you may feel that way. You may feel that way even here this morning. And Paul brings them together in his words and he reminds them that they are all a part of a new form. The family itself, this family of God is amazing. It's amazing that we are all here together this morning because of Jesus. It's a new form. But for Jesus, we would not all be together. And the filling of this form is amazing. It's because of Jesus. It blesses me. It's unique and different and stunning. Paul's trying to remind them, hey, You're a part of Jesus's family. You're a part of something great as a form and you are unique in that form. You're the only fill that we have like you. No one else is like you. God has gifted you. God has gifted me. He's given you something, particularly so you and I can celebrate the giver. And then he uses this very familiar metaphor. How many of you ever heard this metaphor before? You are one body with many parts, right? Can we put a little higher? One body with many parts, lots of us. And then he lists, right, ears and toes, fingers, nose, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? Like, we're all different parts of God's body. Now, I think you and I can see in creation, look around, and this analogy makes sense, right? Like, how many of you watched a football game yesterday on TV? And you can see on the football field many parts, right? There's guards, tackles, receivers, quarterbacks, just the sizes alone, the kicker to the huge offensive lineman. Different sizes, different people, different skills. Or if you go and hear the orchestra, you know they're probably clarinets and trumpets and cellos and percussion. Or if you have a full big meal, there might be steak and rice, salad, dessert, a beverage. Many parts, one meal. Many parts, one team. Many parts, one orchestra. Okay, that makes sense. But I think where it's tough to get on board with God's variety when we all get together where our finiteness runs into God's good creative plan is not the abstract reality of the body and the parts. It's that none of us want to be the big toe. Nobody here is volunteering to play the triangle in the orchestra. Nobody wants to be the water boy, and nobody wants to be the parsley garnish on a great steak dinner. Now, we might have an easy time defining who we believe are the toes, triangles, and parsley in our midst, at work, your family gatherings over the holidays, maybe even here in this room. But probably most of us feel like we're the quarterback or the entree or the first chair violin, or we might resent the ones who are. And Paul is again calling us back that we are not a part of that old kingdom. We are part of a new kingdom where I'm supposed to, even as the big toe, cheer for you if you're the quarterback. Maybe I'm the four-string quarterback and I'll never get in the game, but you will. You know, sometimes in our life, in your life spiritually, as you grow, you're, I, I know in this room, some of you might be in some places where you're a bicep carrying a lot of weight. And you might show up here on Sunday morning and be like, man, all I want to be is the pinky finger. It's all the spiritual energy I have. There are places in your life where you aren't just one thing, you actually adapt and move, I think. And Paul's saying, you and I are all gifted. We've all been given gifts, and we're all gonna get a chance to be 
to give back to God and give him glory, to say thank you, Lord, and be a part of the one body. Now, what the church in Corinth has done is decide that the real quarterbacks of the community speak in tongues. That could mean a prayer language in this passage. That could mean they're literally given tongues like in the early chapters of Acts. They can suddenly speak a language they couldn't speak before. We're not sure exactly which these are is. But they're saying that's the highest gift, that's the best gift. And if you have that gift, clearly you're the coolest. Paul's saying no. He outlines a set of gifts that you heard read. It's only one of the lists in the New Testament Paul has, so there's actually a bigger set of lists. And he particularly positions speaking in tongues at the end of that list. Behind things like healing and mercy and administration, which I love. Because it means that he's putting spreadsheets before speaking in tongues. So tomorrow morning, if you're on spreadsheets, if that's your work tomorrow morning, you can feel like, dang straight, me and Paul, (laughs) doing the kingdom's work. But what he's especially saying is the gifts you are given, the highest gifts are actually to bless others, not you. The highest gifts, the the purpose of the gifts is to form this community, to be in the one body. But it's human nature to compare and contrast and envy. They have that, they do that. And part of what he's forming in us is the ability to let go. So a a good spiritual barometer for yourself could be how am I doing spiritually, could be how willing am I for other people to get affirmation. We'll talk a little more about this in a minute. Or how willing am I, in the words of Psalm 84, to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? It's one of my favorite verses. Could I be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? It means those of you who usher, who are awesome, we could always use more, a little commercial, but it, means, it might mean that the people who greet people coming in the door all the way in are way more important than me and Johnny on a Sunday. Because somebody might be coming tentatively to be in church, Christian, or someone who doesn't know Jesus yet, and what they're looking for is a friendly face who's excited to see them. And that doorkeeper has a bigger role in the body that day than anything that gets preached. Second thing then, again, in God's family, you and I can still feel insecure and insignificant. So what do we do about that? This is the third thing. We be a part of the community and God's community should be team blessing. Okay, right? This community should be team blessing. You and I should be affirming and coming alongside one another's gifts so that we realize that we are a part of something great. We see that we're of value because you and I remind each other and honor each other that way. Because you actually have gifts that are spiritual gifts if you've given your life to Jesus, not just other gifts you may have. You may be here with like STEM science skills, but be super gifted also at hospitality. You might be here as someone who's great at building a team, that's your big role at work, or your family, but you also have physical gifts of healing. You could heal people. You might be great at finance and spreadsheets and data analytics and be really good at teaching, another gift that God has given you. And to to learn about and to share and express those gifts for the good of God's people is actually to become more fully alive in Jesus, which means to not learn about them and not use them is to lay dormant in Jesus. But the place for those things to be affirmed and encouraged and flower is right here in the body of Christ. It's one of the reasons that we, in this series, keep trying to put a stake in the ground occasionally to say being a part of God's people is super important. It's not just being, we're not just asking you to come on Sunday. What we're inviting you to do is come be more fully alive the way God made you. 
Now, sometimes to identify these, again, we need the community to pull it out, to see it. People with spiritual eyes and spiritual sensitivity. It's hard to be a part of a book club or another group you're part of and have them see this sort of spiritual sensitivity. You can express that sensitivity in all the settings you're in, but you might need probably a spiritual, Jesus-loving community to say, you have this gift. Calling, what we really believe is calling happens in community, not on your own, not typically going up on a mountain and hearing God by yourself. It actually happens out of community. So the church should be team blessing. We should be helping each other. You were great at that. I really love how you do that. I've never seen that from you. That's so good. God must have given you that. Johnny and I were part of something like this a few years ago. We brought in a friend of mine named Daryl Johnson, who's sort of a retired, semi-retired preaching uh, pastor, ninja, Yoda type of guy, just a lovely man. And he did a preaching seminar for a bunch of folks in my old diocese and this diocese. There are about 45 people. And Daryl um, preached for about an hour, taught us about an hour and a half. He had about a three-hour segment. And in the midst of that segment, he had talked to a few of us at different times. He began to bless and affirm guys in the room. I don't know if you remember this. But it was stunning. Some of you know David Hanke at Restoration. He affirmed David. He affirmed Johnny and a couple other people. But I remember watching that and feeling like, ooh, this is sacred. Because... This guy gets it. He knows what it means to be a pastor. He knows what to be a preacher. He had spent maybe eight to 10 minutes tops with Johnny and with David, and yet he blessed them. And it was like, you, you have this gift. And you could feel the entire room was like, please, Daryl, talk to me. Because it's so rare, right? But it's so needed. It was amazing. And I would encourage you, guess what? You can do that too. In fact, we're supposed to do it. How else, where else are you going to hear the affirmation of your spiritual gift except from spiritual, capital S, people? Because sometimes you need to hear you have the gift and to grow it and tend it. Sometimes you need to hear you have it because you might not want to have it. Really good friend of mine, lovely friend, a woman I served with within InterVarsity for years, super gifted in administration. And it was super great to work together because I am not super gifted in administration. But together it was like this is humming. But when someone first told her as a college student on a mission trip, at the end of this mission trip, the staff were affirming the students, saying, this, I saw you this three, four weeks here in Russia, and I saw you, and I saw you. And this friend of mine who became a colleague of both of us said to her, I think you have unbelievable gifts of administration. And she burst into tears because she didn't want those gifts because she was stratifying. And she's like, mm, administration down here. But in kingdom heaven, guess what? Administration's up here. And for all of us who are not gifted administratively, can we get a hallelujah for the people gifted that way? Thank you, right? You have no idea. But it has to have team blessing. You have to be team blessing. And with all due respect, take responsibility for it. Look around and be like, I wonder if every Sunday I could bless somebody here for what they're doing and who they're being. I bet you could. Thank you for doing that. It's so great to have you here. I see you do that. That's so great. I bet most of us have not been blessed or encouraged this week. But wouldn't that be cool if people are like, why do you go to church on Sunday? And you're like, you know what? When I go to church, I get blessed and encouraged and I know more who I am. You don't think people don't know Jesus wouldn't come with you if you said that out loud? That's what Paul's saying. Stop hiding around the spirit, be speaking in spirit. Be team blessing. Because, and this is the last thing, Love is still the most important marker. 
Love is still the most important marker. It's really important. All of us have heard this hymn of chapter 13. Love, if I speak in the most excellent way, love is patient, love is kind. Love is, you're gonna hear it at a wedding probably in the next three years. Somebody will use it as a wedding text. And please, before you go to the wedding, read 1 Corinthians 1 to 12. Because you realize Paul is singing this hymn over people who have been jerks. I mean, utter jerks. Terrible moral things. Terrible. I'm not even going to talk about them. And Paul is laying a new groundwork for these people because they just don't know. He's giving them the most excellent way because they have no way. <laughs> but he's doing it because he's had to live it out with them. He's good. They literally are telling him, we don't want to hear from you, Apostle Paul. They're better people than you. He spent a year and a half with them. And he's telling them, they're telling him, forget it. Stop writing letters. And he, so he, he is lived, this is not abstract theology for Paul. This is lived theology for him. You and I are supposed to love. You and I are supposed to work through the synchronization. It is hard. If you read about Fred Astaire and you see all the seamless movie scenes came with hours of painful practice, like bleeding toes painful practice. That kind of synchronization takes time. And Jesus and Paul are calling us to synchronize with him. It takes time and work. It's not, again, abstract. And he gives us two ways to do that. He says, suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who rejoice. Suffer with those who suffer. Here's a way to think about suffering as the body of Christ. Let's say you were leaving the auditorium today and you tripped and fell and, and like really twisted your ankle, Okay. What do you think the first thing, you, so you're on the floor. I hope, I hope this doesn't happen. Let's just get out. For, I'm not prophetic. That's not my gift, so let's just say that's not happening. You fall, what, what would you do with your hands? You fall down. Ow, my ankle. Poor Mark Carlson's on the floor. What do you think he does with his hands? Mark's tough, so he might be like, I got it. Don't worry about it. Or do you think he's gonna grab his ankle with his hands? He's gonna grab his ankle with his hands. Many parts, one body, part of his body is suffering. What happens to the body? Where do the hands go? Immediately. Let's say you're just walking outside and you bump into something hard. You hurt your shoulder. Again, again I'm not encouraging anybody to hurt themselves. Do it and try not to touch your shoulder with your hands. You can't do it. Boom, ow! Ow! You are one body in many parts. You are to suffer with those who suffer. If your shoulder is suffering, physically, you literally can't not do it. So as the body of Christ, that's what we're supposed to do. Boom, ow. And then rejoicing, frankly, I think is harder. Some of you are super gifted at suffering with those who suffer. It's called the mercy gift that Paul annotated earlier. It's a gift doesn't mean none of us should do it. It doesn't matter if we're gifted or not at it. We still get to do it. But rejoicing, I think, is harder because it exposes us a little more, doesn't it? Because if, I, if there's something to rejoice in, maybe that's something I wanted too. Someone gets engaged and I'd like to be married. Someone gets a promotion I thought I deserved. Someone gets affirmation I thought I wanted. Someone gets blessed and I didn't get blessed. Or someone gets blessed and they got more blessing than me.
But if we, if we want to be team blessing, if we want to be one body, many parts, to honor Jesus in a way that shows the appeal of what it means to be a part of his family, we need to learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice. Otherwise, we'll be bitter. That's not, it's not a fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the devil. It's this analogy I've shared several times here because it's so great. It's not my analogy. A friend of mine on Universal used it. It's the, this pie analogy, remember? The way we look at pie. And we think that God has one finite pie. And so if Richard Crocker gets a piece of pie, it means I'm gonna get less pie. It doesn't matter how much I love Richard, but I like pie. And that kind of stinks. And then maybe Eric Carlson gets pie. Now I'm down two pieces of pie. And I start to wonder how much pie does God have? Does God have enough pie for me? By the way, this is the easiest uh, lunch sermon illustration conversation you can have. Buy pie on the way home. Cut some pie out. Don't give it to your kids. See what happens. <laughs> but that's how we all, it doesn't matter what age you are, right? We worry. Maybe God's only, maybe God's only got one kind of pie. Maybe it's pecan pie. I don't like pecan pie. Thank you for spiritual issues over here about pecan pie. But that's not how God works. That is not how God works. What God has is Jesus for you. It's all the pie you ever need. And if someone else gets some of Jesus, I'm, I, I'm supposed to be excited about that because I'm supposed to love them because we're the new body of Christ and we're supposed to look different than the world that's so worried about who's getting pie. Because it is hard. And it is tempting to want to call the whole thing off. But God didn't call the whole thing off with you and me. So we are commanded to work on it together. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm so thankful for Paul's courage in writing this letter and just his persistence, his dogged persistence to love this church. Thank you for the ways uh, he's specific with them and direct with them. And thank you again. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in this room and the gifts that are represented here. I thank you for the privilege it is to seek to love and serve them. And I pray you'd teach us, Lord, what it means to be the body of Christ in a way that pushes out insecurities and in feeling insignificant because we know you love us, but also we affirm each other. And people sense what it means to know your affirmation because we're extending that to them as well. I pray especially for anyone here this morning who might be wrestling with that, who's had a hard week, who's been buffeted by the world in some way, shape, or form. We pray that they would know their value as a part of this community, part of our forming, and their unique filling by being here and that they would be celebrated by you and each other today in some special way. In your name, amen. Oh